Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Asian American Studies, a part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I'm Julia Lee, Professor of Asian American Studies at the University of California, Irvine, and your host for today's show. My guest, Takeo Rivera, is Assistant Professor of English at Boston University. He specializes in performance studies, ethnic studies, and queer theory within the context of U.S. culture. Takeo wears a lot of hats at BU. Along with his appointment in English, he is a core faculty member in the Women's Gender and Sexuality Program, affiliate faculty in the African American Studies Program and the American and New England Studies Program, and a member of the BU Faculty Gender and Sexuality Studies Group. An award-winning instructor, Takeo teaches courses in contemporary and modern drama, Asian American literature, queer theory, new media, and racial capitalism. Takeo is also a playwright whose works have been staged in New York City, Boston, Los Angeles, and the Bay Area. He's here today to talk about his new book, Model Minority Masochism, Performing the Cultural Politics of Asian American Masculinity, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2022. Model Minority Masochism offers a rich and provocative account of Asian American subject formation, arguing that the model minority narrative has been critically overlooked as a constitutive element of Asian racial formation. To put it bluntly, Rivera argues that those who are critical of the model minority, which would be most Asian American studies scholars, including myself, have consistently represented it as a, quote, harmful stereotype produced by a white racial order, a myth that obfuscates the true portrait of Asian American diversity. This has created an unhelpful but stubbornly persistent dyad within the field between the good assimilated subject, who is really bad, and the bad resistant subject, who is really good. In order to understand the complex ways that notions of the model minority infiltrate assimilationist, liberatory, and radical constructions of Asian American identity, Rivera turns to a theory he calls model minority masochism. A quote, theory of Asian American subject formation that centers the psychic and affective effects of the model minority myth, end quote. I read the theory of model minority masochism as offering a capacious and nuanced framework for understanding the strains that seem to constitute contemporary Asian American subjectivity, particularly Asian American masculinity, techno-orientalism, resentment, melancholia, affect or affectlessness, and Afro-Asian solidarity. Rivera offers a genealogy of Asian American subject formation that cannot be reduced to the Asian American subject, but is instead enacted in, quote, the liminal zones of human and machine, interior and exterior, model minority and perpetual foreigner, pain and pleasure. Takeo, welcome to New Books in Asian American Studies. Thank you so much, and I am honored to be here. So I'd like to start today by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself as a scholar. Uh, Based on the bio I just read, it's clear that your work is situated multiply across disciplines. So could you tell us what experiences led you to where you are today in terms of your scholarship? Sure. Yeah. In a lot of ways, um, I... So I'm, I'm a fourth-generation Japanese-American, third-generation Filipino-American. I consider myself a second-generation Asian-Americanist in the sense that my parents uh, were involved with Asian-American activism quite a bit. Um, and um, my mom, for example, was 
peripherally involved with the iHotel stuff. My dad was uh, w- one of the students who helped fight to establish ethnic studies at uh, Asian American studies at UC Davis. And they met initially at an anti-Marcos event uh, in, 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 uh, at that time. And I grew up as a consequence in a household that took a lot of the lessons of Asian American studies and ethnic studies for granted. Um, so for me, that was always part of the atmosphere. That was kind of my norm in terms of my values, in terms of how I saw the world. So what was interesting was after I graduated high school, and I went I went to high school in the East Bay, in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I went to, to, to Stanford for undergrad. And, you know, this is a place that one of my mentors once called the capital of neoliberalism. And it's interesting to think about how the Asian American population there, there's a very active activist segment of it, but they were the minority. They were very, it, most Asian Americans did not get involved with it. Most Asian Americans on campus were interested in things like medicine and tech. And as someone who was really involved in Asian American cultural politics and organizing and so forth, I was consistently frustrated at the lack of, or rather the small proportion of the Asian American community that seemed interested in the work that we were doing. And it occurred to me that when it came down to it, most Asian Americans had no interest in disrupting the model minority um, and were actually actively being that, enjoying being part of that that uh, that current into uh, standard upper middle class or upper class capitalism, and when it came down to it, uh, I thought about my own sort of relationship to the model minority, ways in which I found strains of that within myself, despite my own criticism, um, and I started off writing a, like a, basically a slam slam poem because I was a, I was a slam poet and, and playwright. Uh, called Model Minority. And that kind of kicked off my my thinking about this that continued well throughout my my life. I would go in and out thinking about this topic. I eventually went to uh, Berkeley for graduate school. And um, and then uh, I pursued that as, as a dissertation and became a book. Um, and what I needed to, to really get to that point intellectually was engaging with a lot of queer theory and a lot of new media theory. So I have um, like Juan Rodriguez and Abigail DeKosnick at Berkeley to thank for that. And the project was really shepherded along by Colleen Lund, Shannon Steen. Um, but yeah, that was kind of that was kind of my journey. I, I, I engage with it as, as someone with a background in activism and, and activist discourse and also as an artist. Yeah, I mean, I, I it's fascinating to me that you came from a, a childhood and young adulthood in which you were sort of immersed in Asian American activism and Asian American study, kind of the, the political formation of Asian American studies. I think for the vast majority of Asian Americanists, at least anecdotally based on people that I know, it's kind of the opposite. Um, there's an awareness that comes later about kind of these issues, maybe in college, maybe in graduate school. For me, it didn't happen until graduate school, really. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Just as a follow-up, um, were there certain key moments in your life, in your either in college or graduate school, that led you to this book in particular? Yeah, I mean, besides besides writing the the, the poetry and plays that I I, I mentioned, um, and and I and I quote those those like old undergrad writing at the at the very end of the book, um, I. I also, I, I, I think, I think I was also, I was really interested. I, I guess when I was exposed to masochism theory for the first time, it really landed. Um, so, you know, I was, uh, specifically with Juan Rodriguez's work and her taking her seminar in graduate school, I became really interested in these counterintuitive relationships to power. And then I realized it's kind of silly to say this, but I thought about anecdotally how a lot of my Asian friends, Asian male friends in particular, loved cyberpunk. Like a lot of Asian male friends love cyberpunk, knowing full well how racist it was uh, as, you know, as, as, as a genre and the ways in which Asians in particular are being seen as being machine-like and so forth. But there was this weird masochistic attachment where, where 
Asian Americans, I think, really enjoyed that uh, that racist aspect about it. And I thought about how this might have something to do with these attachments to the model minority, this thing that we're being told is a myth by people that I politically completely agree with, right? And I myself, um, I'm actively combating the model minority throughout most of my life, while at the same time seeing, but no, the material reality is a lot of Asian Americans are perfectly fine with it and enjoy the model minority. So I thought about that. I was like, okay, this is this is this is interesting. And cyberpunk and techno orientalism is where I sort of found the aesthetic anchor for this pleasure in particular. Um, so then, you know, so intellectually speaking, that's where it kind of spun out from there. Um, but certainly, I would say, you know, growing up with or not growing up, but but in undergrad onward being surrounded by a lot of Asian techies, many of whom are my friends and to this day, um, it was just very interesting to see um, the kinds of affective attachments that Asian Americans and Asian American, East, especially I should say East Asian, Asian American men uh, had with regards to these, 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 suppo- these, 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 these harmful quote unquote stereotypes. That's really, that's such an insightful answer, actually, because it also explains like the last chapter in your book where you talk about the video game, right, and kind of gaming culture. Um, I want to get to that. I'm going to get to that for sure. Um, But you just talked about uh, this kind of counterintuitive relations to power, counterintuitive kind of understandings of power. And that was a really evocative phrase because it does really capture, I feel like, kind of your method in the book. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So I was, I was, I love the book's opening, right? Where you kind of, we, you, you narrate this genealogy of Asian American subject formation that begins with this Vincent Chin. And we're, we're going to talk more about Vincent Chin in, in a little bit, but um, I really appreciated how you put together these, you know, different historical events or cultural figures or cultural works or ideas um, that A, do not really seem that related to each other. Right? <laughs> yeah. Or, or B, offer up a kind of another reading of these pairings that really seem to question the premise of the field um, broadly. So in making these sort of unexpected pairings or finding these different connections between things that we've taken for granted, right, you interrogate some very basic ideas regarding race and identity. And I say basic, not because your thinking is basic, but because in reading your book, I really realized um, to an astonishing extent, right, how much Asian American studies struggles with what seems to be the kind of fundamental questions about how the field is constituted, like what is it that we're doing exactly? So the exploration of these things that we tend to think of as oppositional or maybe not so obviously connected to each other really begins for me with your title, Model Minority Masochism. Um, When I think of model minority, I think of a discourse that is rooted in the social, right? Um, how others view model, how others view Asian Americans. When I think of masochism, I think of an like an interior subjective experience that's about one's own experience of one's own body, right? Whether that's pleasure or pain. So, can you define these concepts for us as you're using them, and then explain how they speak to each other in your book? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, so the model minority, right? So again as you've already said, it's oftentimes thought of as this harmful stereotype of, you know, Asians being exceptional um, academically, being really great at math and science and so forth. But I think it's more helpful to think of it as something like a discourse or an ideology or a performatic scenario. And I could get, you know, more technical about those things. Um, But you know, I think there's a lot of really great model minority uh, critique these days. So, you know, one of my my dear friends is Erin Quinn, for example, and her her, her book Passing Prefer for Perfect is it's, that's a masterpiece. And and but the way that she thinks about the model minority is principally in terms of the. She also thinks about that kind of interiority of the psychic effects and how the model minority has affected Asian Americans. Uh, psychology and this obsessive need to excel, right? Um, and the way that becomes internalized. And she thinks about these like wonderful case studies. For me, I'm actually a little less um, 
I'm, I'm not necessarily as fixated on the question of harm. For me, I'm a little more fixated on the question of power dynamics. For me, the model minority, as far as what my lane goes, is I'm, I'm most curious about how the model minority has been utilized as a position and as an ideology to support the meritocracy of, 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 of racial capitalism in the United States in particular. Not to say that it, this is the only version of model minority discourse, but certainly around Asian Americans, um, this is the most dominant one, right? And for me, uh, you know, so I, I like to think of it, again, as sort of a scenario. You have particular actors uh, th- whose roles are immediately recognizable because of how these, um, because of how the, the racial hierarchy is set up, as it were. So the, the model minority essentially acts as this uh, safeguard and legitimizer as a minoritized subject for a larger system that is in fact fair, right? So, uh, so a lot of the, the model minority is actually about adhering to capitalist conformity, right? Masochism is actually even harder to, to define because there are so many different intellectual traditions. So psychoanalysis has many different takes on, on, on masochism. Um, the most, uh, and then you have affect theory, you have black feminism. I draw from a little bit of everything, but the most layperson understanding of masochism, of course, is like deriving pleasure from pain. And I think in a lot of ways, that's not necessarily the most accurate. I think it's more accurate to say that it's a form of sensation and woundedness and some relationship between sensation and woundedness. And that often takes the form of pleasure, but it can also take the form of moral authority. It can also take the form of a fantasy of omniscience. And this kind of depends on who you're talking to. So, you know, the theorists that I most draw from here are Deleuze and uh, Amber Jumala Musser who I think has uh, written probably the best book on masochism in the last couple of decades, uh, Sensational Flesh. So, you know, I'm drawing a, a lot from, you know, post-structuralism, black feminist critique. Um, and think, and but I think what's really, really key about what most are saying, she's not the first to say this, but she says it very, very, very well, and especially within a racialized context, and how masochism is really uh, an intrinsic part of subject formation. Um, and I think that's that's what I'm most interested in is thinking about this relationship of pleasure, sensation, and the production of a subject, and that matters so much for Asian Americans, especially when we think about its ongoing constructedness, right? Like Asian American, as we know, is not an ethnic identity but a political one, one that is based off of off of these panethnic connections. Uh, around certain forms of, of, of political necessity and, and advocacy. So, but then the question is, what are the kind of psychic attachments that come when we identify ourselves in such a way, positionally, in, a, in an anti-Black world, in a settler colonial world, right? So, it, so in a lot of ways, what I'm thinking about, so you're absolutely right in how I utilize a social definition of the model minority as an entry point to think about the interior, right? So what are the effects of the, of the exterior to the interior? And what are the kind of, again, I, I think about investment, what are the, the, the forms of attachments that Asian Americans have um, with and against it? And even when you're against it, there's still forms of attachment. Um, yeah. That's very helpful. I mean, it really, I think, is very, it's a helpful way of thinking about how do I get to this question, but via this other route, (laughs) Um, you know, a little bit of a, you know, kind of an alternative way of getting to that question that has been, you know, sort of attempted from a variety of angles in the past. So I really appreciated that answer. Um, Along with masochism and model minority, your book um, brings up a sort of a a rich array of threads um, in the study of Asian racialization and representation. So one of the central themes um, is this idea of techno-orientalism, which you've already kind of raised a little bit. Um, So for those maybe who aren't as familiar with this term, can you define techno-orientalism and talk about how it informs um, your reading of Asian racialization? 
Yeah, I guess the 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 easiest way of putting it is associating Asians with machines, uh, associating Asians as having machine like attributes, or 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 um, thinking about Asians as being technologically advanced, but oftentimes culturally barbarous. Um, and there are various, there are a lot of variations of techno orientalism. Your colleague, of course, at UC Irvine, uh, Christopher Fan, is was you know he was my my friend in graduate school and he and i uh thought about techno orientalism together quite a bit um and um and you know and, and the second volume of the techno orientalism anthology is coming out in a, very soon with, with christopher fan is one of the the co-editors so do look out for that as well as far as books go um and uh, but yeah, I, I guess I guess I I, I, re- I mentioned cyberpunk earlier. Cyberpunk is oftentimes where we think about how techno orientalism really had its uh, its its clearest aesthetic, contemporary aesthetic uh, coherence, uh, especially when we think about things like Blade Runner, Neuromancer, you know, the, like like robot ninjas and so forth. Uh, it, it, Asians as representing a kind of dystopia of having high technology, but cultural erosion, and particularly a moral erosion, right? There's the, there's a kind of postmodern schizophrenia, to use Jameson, um, that we oftentimes associate with the presence of Asianness in these sort of cultural forms. Now, that said, I should preface by saying that techno-orientalism is, in fact, a lot older than that. When we can think about all the way going to, like, uh, you know, coolies in 19th century Cuba as being referred to as mechanized meat, for example, right? So, so you know, there there are there's a there's a much longer legacy here uh, than the 1980s onward. But I will say that a lot of the the techno orientalist uh, critique has focused on there because it's so blatant, and because there is there's something to be said about the rise of Asian America with tech, uh, with contemporary techno orientalism in particular. Um, and I'm very curious about that. I think it's very interesting, for example, that Vincent Chin was murdered the same year that 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 Blade Runner came out. Right. So, so I'm like, so, the, so I, uh, I mean, that is largely coincidence, but it, so, but it does demonstrate that discursively there's something in the air in this period in the, in the, in the early eighties uh, that is associating Asians with machines. Mm-hmm. Let, let's talk a little bit about Vincent Chin. Um, he's, you know, the, the sort of the representation and the discourse around his murder um, constitute like two of your chapters. Right. So um just as a kind of background information, like the conventional narrative in Asian American studies is that Chin's murder galvanized a quote, these are your words, liberalized Asian American panethnicity, right? So I wanted to ask you to talk me through that process, like how that came about and why, and you talk about this in the book, why it was a strategic necessity um, on the part of Asian American activists to kind of um, portray him in a certain way. Yeah. So, you know, so I guess I am sort of cautiously critical of the ways that that Asian American identity formed in the wake, uh, or a particular version of it anyway, formed in the wake of Vincent Chin's murder. But I, but as you said, right, is that there was also a necessity to it. So you know, we have to keep in mind that this is very much the Reagan era. This is this is this is a period in which. Um, there, I mean, we've been contending, uh, people of color have been contending with this necessity for respectability for a very long time since before the civil rights movement in the sixties. Right. So there is this impetus to portray Vincent Chin to a conservative Chinese immigrant community, a culturally conservative Chinese immigrant community, and to the, the media at large, to, to show Chin as a kind of model citizen. So there's all this insistence, for example, over how, first of all, he was, I mean, it is genuinely horrible that he was killed right before his wedding, right? Um, and also this insistence that he was an engineer, that he, that he was like, that he was like, on the up and up in terms of social and social mobility, um, what was downplayed was the fact that he was in a strip club, right? What was downplayed was, by most accounts, he did sort of start the fight, um, right? Now that said, now let me be very, very, very clear that 
it's still an atrocity that he was murdered, right? Now, what's interesting is we see we see this in, in different, I think what's different about this versus, say, like, contemporary Black Lives Matter, right? Like, in contemporary Black Lives Matter, I think we've come a long way because, with, 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 like, you know, there was a lot of discourse about, like, Eric Garner was like selling cigarettes or whatever. Right. And therefore, you know, but, but the response to that is who cares? That does not matter. Cause at the end of the day, like none of that matters as far as him get being des- deserved to die. None of these things make them deserve. So, so there's this critique of respectability that exists uh, today. That was not true. That was not, that had not taken hold in the, in the 1980s quite as much. So, you know, so so there was this really this real emphasis on on Shin's being a model citizen. And ironically, what that did was reproduce a new model minority framework. And it was a, it was a model minority framework that Asian Americans themselves are owning, even as the activists who are the, called the American Citizens for Justice. Interesting name, by the way. Right. Um, that the American Citizens for Justice uh, we're actually actively educating the community about the model minority stereotype and how it was harmful while they themselves were promoting a kind of model minority ideology in order to justify how Vincent Chin did not deserve to die because he was such a good person on all these conventional metrics, right? And these are hetero, these are like heteronormative respectable metrics, right? So what's interesting about this too is when we look at uh you know, Deleuze's ideas about masochism is that one of the key aspects of, of masochism there is this disavowal of pleasure, right? This 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 disavowal and delay of pleasure um, becomes part of the masochistic framework. So that's why we have uh, a different form of masochism here, and a different a different vision of the model minority here, and and it's also I should say different from what I would say is a techno-oriental lynching. Because, and I sort of make this argument in the book, how Chin in a lot of ways was murdered for being associated with these mechanical attributes. So 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 a lot of the model minority attachments are about reclaiming model minority status, sorry, machine-like status in a more palatable way and from there from then forward we see a new iteration of asian american identity that is very removed from the radical version that we saw in, in, in the late 60s and early 70s um and and that kind of brings us to today so yeah i mm-hmm. mean the chapter was really great because you have like the description of of chin's murder and um being beaten to death with a baseball bat right and then you juxtapose it with the kind of images and like nationalistic and um, anti-Asian rhetoric of the auto industry of the time, which of course like sponsored these events where people could beat a car with a baseball bat. And you have that image of a man, a white man um, hitting a car, a Japanese car with a baseball bat. Um, So I felt like, I mean, for me, that chapter was really illuminating, not only in terms of like describing the path, like sort of certain decisions or key moments, within kind of this activist within this framework and the kind of limitations of it as you're talking about like the very very the context mattered like that historical moment mattered in the decisions that were being made around kind of mobilizing um mobilizing folks around chin's murder so i really appreciated that aspect of the chapter um so I just wanted to, just as a quick follow-up, this idea that you mentioned in there of becoming machine, and you do this really brilliant reading of um, Who Killed Vincent Chin, right? The, the, the award-winning documentary that was produced in, in the years following Chin's death. Um, and can you just talk a little bit about that, like the, the context of um, Chin's murder and this idea that he becomes, becomes a machine? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think what's, what's interesting is... Um... That that idea of mine—it's one of one of the earliest ideas that I was working with as I was developing this project. I remember when I was working with Abigail Dukosnik, um and talking about that incident, which she basically was like, uh, "You know, screw the metaphor, right? This isn't this isn't just a representation." There's actual becoming happening here, right? Like, and in the and I think the thing is, right, is like this is kind of how racialization works, right? What 
the, the thing that matters most in terms of determining what is real, quote unquote, is that social reality. When these when these very um, conceptualizations of what is Chinese versus Japanese, these are socially constructed to begin with, right? So, so the killing in many ways made Shin Japanese because that's how he was interpolated, um, and that's how it mattered most to the particular forms of, of violence and racialization at the time. So when I talk about becoming machine, I'm taking it a step further. Because, you know, as and, and, and again, this is the work of, of the film itself, of Who Killed Vincent Chan by Rene Tajima Penya and Christine Choi, that there is this clear parallel between the way that he was Chin was bludgeoned and the way that the cars were bludgeoned in these large public events put on by 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 the, the, the auto companies and the, and the unions. And uh, what's interesting, so when I think about becoming, I'm drawing a lot again from from like Deleuze and Guattari here. And I'm really interested in how the process of becoming blurs the two things that are in transit, right? So Asian and machine become sort of co-constitutive, especially when we look at the cartoons that 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 we see in that film that they that they describe. Uh, you see, like Japanese stereotypical facial features on the cars, and what's interesting is when you put those facial features on the cars, it somehow makes them less human. <laughs> right so so uh so so somehow making something more asian results in it like looking less human uh there's something really grotesque about that um but it also sort of demonstrates that a, a constitutive part of 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 uh how we understand japanese within this aggressively racializing framework is informed by the machine but also vice versa how we understand the machine is also partly understood by our Orientalist fears. So, uh, so that's kind of what I'm thinking about is, is the, the, this, the killing chin in the context of these cars being destroyed publicly in the same way, closes the loop. It shows that it goes in both ways. So the becoming machine, uh, essentially, yeah, it, it, this screw the metaphor. It all becomes, it just, Damn. Yeah. Damn, there it is. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, you talk about this a little bit in your introduction, like the kind of the, uh, how your objects of study really range, right? Across different media, um, from literature to drama, to video games, to popular culture. And I, I was really struck, um, by, the kind of range of figures that you open each chapter with. So you have Vincent Chen, you have Michael Dang, you have Richard Hayoki, you have Ang Lee as the Hulk, <laughs> yeah. um, which was wonderful. You have the Asian American gamer. So could you talk a little bit more maybe about the process of object selection for your book? Yeah, um, yeah. Settle on these things in particular. <laughs> um What's funny is, again, when like way back when this was uh, in its early dissertation phase, um, I had advisors who were like, what is wrong with you <laughs> in terms of uh, looking at the, the wide range of things? Um, but then as I as I like turned that into a prospectus and I was like making their argument, I was like, you know what, like what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to tell a story. And uh, <laughs> and then eventually they're like, OK, OK. I see what's going on here. I mean, I guess at the end of the day, um, I guess this book, I uh, I don't consider this book to be particularly literary. Um, I guess at the end of the day, what I'm uh, uh, the if this book is trying to make a commentary on, say, Asian American theater or Asian American literature, it's not necessarily that's not the principal thing it's invested in, even though it is making some of those comments or comments. It's really the primary investment of this book is really in the question of subject formation uh, and really the question and the question of, of like feelings and affects and, 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 uh, and how we understand what these, these sort of different cultural politics do to ourselves and, and to our personhoods. And so I guess when I thought about the objects, what I really, so I, if I'm to sort of historicize it, like, you know, Vincent Chin's murder really is the kickoff. So 80, so everything was sort of 82 onward. 
But what I was most interested in, every object, well, most I would say most objects in the book um, were messy. There are some objects I could have chosen to write about that very easily illustrated my point, but a lot of them got cut from the project. Every one of them that, that I chose, most, well, most, most like the, pretty much all of them, with some exceptions, were written by like East Asian upper middle class men on, on, on some level. So, so we are looking at the most dominant hegemonic strain of Asian America, first of all, right? And that was intentional, right? So, um, because I'm being honestly pretty critical here, um, but but the all these objects um, were in various levels conflicted, or they produced these unintuitive affects, which I thought were were, were the, that's what, what kind of drew me to them. Um, there's there's some objects by 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 authors I I I have very uh, low esteem of in some in some cases, um, and. Um, and uh, but it was interesting seeing how some of these some of the more awful authors. Um, that's not true for all of them. Let me be very clear. But but the, the ones who are awful, it's interesting seeing how there are these unintentional things that were going against what they what they thought they were doing, uh, especially in regards to attachments to Asianness. So um, <laughs> and if you've read the book, you you probably know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah. If I have anything to thank you for for this book, it's the image you included of Ang Lee, which I did not know. Ang Lee actually was he, he was the model for the Hulk in his um, his movie, um, and I think that really that was a really great moment in the book, just because it really highlights what you're talking about, which is <laughs> he's the structural reason for the Hulk, right? But he's totally invisibilized within within the realm of the film, and so I thought that was just really brilliant. Um, so just to move on a little bit now, you're talking in chapter three about um, two plays by Philip Kahn Gotanda, uh, I Dream of Chang and Ang and After the War. And you make this um, case that blackness um, haunts Asian American political and, and the Asian American political and li- literary imaginary. So, um, and you call blackness the racial superego uh, for certain elements of Asian America. Um, and so I found this to be really like a really interesting and helpful uh, description and explanation of Afro-Asian cultural production, actually, which in many cases is just sort of Asian American literature that is invested in representing blackness in some way. Um, It doesn't work both ways, right? Um, And so can you talk about the black superego and how it plays out in Gotanda's work? Sure, yeah, yeah, of course, Chris. Um, And I, uh, so I, so Philip, Philip, Gatanda's uh, one of the people I love in this book. So, you know, I, just to be very clear about that. Um, but what's interesting is I should also sort of preface the fact that when I was in graduate school, um, Afro-pessimism was huge. Like Afro-pessimism was like really taking off. And I would say like really dominated a lot of our discussions. So this, this uh, and I and I engaged with a lot of um, Asian American Afro-pessimists, uh, which was, you know, so a lot of those conversations found their way into this chapter, um, either consciously or unconsciously. And I guess what's, so, you know, uh, I, I'm always inconsistent about my terminology. And sometimes I call it the black superego. Sometimes I call it the Afro-Asian superego. But certainly I would say that within the Asian American left, and we think about Asian American studies people, we think about activists on the ground, um, you know, I would say young people who are just like young Asian Americans generally interested in, in social justice. Um, there has always been this sort of persistent concern that Asian, like to put it ultra bluntly, that Asian Americans are just not as oppressed as black folks. And therefore, you know, there's almost like an atonement that has to happen for that. Right. And we have to sort of recognize Asian, like, you know, our non-black privilege and, and there is this way, but I guess that the, which is things that I don't disagree with, to be clear, but I think what becomes problematic sometimes is the way that blackness sometimes becomes a little bit fetishized as having this ultimate truth value, right? So you know, much like kind of like, you know, like listen to black women discourse, right? There's this like, 
there, there, you know, blackness then becomes a, almost like a totem in in a way that I think is super reductive and 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 actually re- and also essentializes the black experience on so many levels and doesn't take into account the heterogeneity of ideology within blackness, right? Um, but in any event, there there comes this way in which blackness becomes the moral authority for the Asian American who's trying to fight for racial justice, right? Um, and in the chapter, I'm very conflicted about this because I do think that there's a very problematic f- fetishization going on, but I also think there's something sort of productive about it too. So, because um, you know, as my, as my mentor calling my rules, right? You know, so, you know, you, you can't not engage with 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 Afro-Asian solidarity. Like you have to. Like, like you know, it, it, it is in fact a moral imperative. I actually agree with that. Um, but then what? But then you know. Uh, but I guess the problem is the ways that yeah again it 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 is it can essentialize blackness and it can oftentimes produce these like discourses where we are kind of like hurting ourselves and punishing ourselves really brutally and sometimes sabotaging one another in in our communities because um, you know with 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 these types of accusations instead of thinking about this as an ongoing discourse and and and, and Asianness and blackness as things that are, are very very fluid. Uh, very heterogeneous. Um, but I do think that, that Philip Katanda's plays do a phenomenal job of demonstrating the ways that the Afro-Asian superego does in fact haunt the Asian American conscience, particularly on the left. And, and that is to say Asian Americans who are trying to reject the model minority. So this is like the secondary mode of model minority masochism here is this idea that like I have to flagellate myself uh, with the truth of blackness, in order to be, in order to emerge as like a a, a more progressive Asian American subject, right? So it does produce this sort of awkward dynamic, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really appreciated that chapter precisely for what you're describing, right? The kind of ways in which it's not either all, you know, it, it there is something problematic about it, and yet something productive, right? And I thought. Uh, Gotanda's plays, your discussion of them really highlight that, both of those aspects, right? Um, I wanted to move on to the chapter that actually intrigued me the most, or that I found that I had the most aha moments, and then that was chapter five about Kowlin's um, two works, right? Taipei and Insomnia and the Aunt. It's Kowlin and Taolin, right? That's that's the tricky thing is that you got two different authors here. Right, right, sorry. Mm-hmm. And then this idea of affective flatness, um, so you cite Jameson's work, right? And you talk about um, what he calls the waning of affect, right? In terms of um, his theory of postmodernity. And you kind of tweak that term, right? And you say um, what he calls the waning of affect isn't an absent of absence of affect, but is instead an alienation from it. Um, and I found this to be such a helpful formulation, right? For thinking about 21st century Asian American literary production just broadly. Um, So could you talk about affective flatness um, and give us some examples from Lynn's text? Yeah, so... um... So again, this 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 is the ch- what's funny about the. I'm so happy you brought up this chapter because I think this is the chapter that um, I recommend the least to a lot of people because I think it's it's also the densest chapter in a lot of ways. But it's also, if I'm being completely honest, the one I'm most theoretically proud of because I think I think that it's it's it, I'm, I'm making the weirdest little arguments. But yes, you're, you're so thank you for for cluing in on that. I so, wrote margin. This explains everything. I mean, I it's like a universal theory, and, and it felt to me when I read it. So I'm excited to hear what you have to say about it. Thank you, thank you. So I think what's interesting about like affective flatness is that it's not actually an absence. It's like it it it, it is act. It does actually have an identifiable quality that we oftentimes. Or not we. What am I saying? But 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 that can oftentimes be associated with like the Orientalized Asian who's just kind of like staring at, at at a screen all day, right? So, but the thing is, like that the the, the terror, the sort of postmodern terror, is that affect spreading 
to everyone, right? And you know, and 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 I think there is the kind of moral panic around all the all the youngsters staring at their phones all the time, even though right, right. it's cross generational at this point. But you know, but 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 that kind of like that that that. But that is not the absence of affect. What it is is a particular type and species of affect that can, that becomes racialized. And thought of as as and there's something that we associate with like the unfeeling Asian, right? We go all the way back, you know. We look at like uh, you know Vietnam War discourse and how, right? And just like it's like, oh yeah, the unfeeling Asian, they don't feel they don't feel remorse and pain the way that we Westerners do, right? That kind of white supremacist BS, um, but that kind of coheres as a consequence of our actual engagement with technology, right? So we see these sort of cybernetic um, relationships happening. So in, in this chapter, I talk about Taolin's Taipei and, Ta- and Tanlin's um, Insomnia and the Aunt. And in Taolin's book, what's interesting about Taolin is he is he's gone on the record basically saying that he thinks that writing about race is racist, right? So, so he's like aggressively... Um, and he's, you know, he's also, uh, you know, allegedly in a, 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 you know, committed some some terrible acts uh, with regards to gender based violence, um, and and also is someone who uh, is trying not to write about race, even as he does. So I think what's kind of interesting about Taipei is I'm like, I'm that's part part of part of the interesting thing about this is that he actively embraces that affect of flatness first through through his iPhone and his laptop and then through drugs. Um, and he oftentimes describes himself as like a zombie or as, uh, or thinking about other Asians as, as being a screen themselves, uh, which is kind of interesting. Then we have Tanlin, Tanlin who I think is, uh, whose work I, I, I really admire. And, and he, he thinks about how the, um, so in, in Insomnia and the Aunt, he's thinking about these this idea of having this aunt in the in, in, in this rural wilderness and watching Conan O'Brien till the late hours of the night. And then he sort of starts hallucinating and thinking about his aunt as the television itself. So we have this relationship here in these two texts of the Asian becoming screen, right? Not, not unlike the way in which Chin becomes car, we have Asians becoming screen. Asians becoming the flat interface. Um, and thus, the interface itself, we can think of as having Asian-ish traits as well, right? for, very, for various reasons. Um, so that kind of demonstrates to me how there is, even when we think about our, our current relationship to the information age and technology and so forth, that there is a kind of Asianness that haunts our, our, our anxieties around humanity and yada, yada, yada. Um, but it also demonstrates to me, especially in Taolin's case, this kind of unproblematized attachment to that techno-orientalized stereotype, right? And the one that can oftentimes take the form of pleasure. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm trying to do in that chapter. Yeah, like... <laughs> well, I'm just wondering if affective flatness, maybe this is kind of a, a, a question that you, you know, that isn't so relevant to you, but I mean, because you're talking about becoming, right? Asians becoming the very thing, right? Um, but I'm interested in it as well as in terms of like um, a narrative style, like uh, the idea of flatness is kind of like, and this is where, you know, that's where I'm like, oh, like that's really intriguing to me, right? That it isn't just kind of representational, well, or becoming, right? It's not even representational, but that it it's a stylistic thing as well. Um, so I don't know if you have any any comment on that, but that's really intriguing to me as well. Oh, you know, you're absolutely right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that uh, I didn't like um, get into that more. But yes, no, absolutely. If we're talking about um, so with with Tanlin, um, he describes his work as being ambient, right? This kind of ambient literature. That's kind of his, like his principal objective, is is producing the and and um, and there is a way in which the the style of the prose uh, develop. You know, it 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 produces this 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 dispassionate ethereality, uh, 
And we see that actually in common both texts, although it's a little bit different. Taolin, I would say, you know, the his his prose style is um, it's it's like I would say almost militantly dry um, and 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 incredibly matter of fact and how and 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 almost phenomenological and how it's it it is completely bereft of of of, of feeling or sentimentality um but there's also something very and not to say that that's obviously original but, but there's something very specifically 21st century about the way that it manifests and the way that 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 it it has the the texture of of doom scrolling. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. It provides the, the, a, a similar eff- effective tone, I would say, in the, in the style of both of them. So thank you. Thank you for asking me the last. Oh, that's brilliant. That's... So the last chapter of your book delves into a video game called um, Deus Ex Human Revolution, DXHR. And I don't know very much about gaming, and I've never played this game before. Um, so bear with my ignorance, please. But this um, game makes use of classic techno-orientalist tropes, right, in which Asians and Asia are figured as highly technological and dystopian, right? Um, and in conjunction with that, you talk about sort of the um, Asian Americans, particularly young Asian Americans, having the highest rate of video game activity and consumption over other racial groups. Um, and so I just wanted you to talk about that kind of relationship between the, the techno-orientalism of the game and then the experience of the gamers, Asian American gamers in particular, and their relationship to that game. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, just to preface, I'd like to say that, um, so Deus Ex Human Revolution 2011 by Eidos Montreal. I, to be clear, I actually love this game. Um, and I, I love the, the Deus Ex series. I think they're, they're, they're quite brilliant. They're really well written and philosophically really fascinating. They're just really racist or this one's really racist anyway. This installment's really racist. Um, and to, um, to Eidos Montreal's credit, I think, you know, their, their, their sequel, Mankind Divided, was uh, much less racist. Um, so I do sort of wonder whether or not they were aware of my my critique of their of their game, which originally came out in 2014. There's an article version of this that came out in 2014. Uh, so I do wonder whether or not there was, they, 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 they read the feedback as it were. Um, but the, um, what's interesting about, so, you know, as you said, right, is that Asian Amer- Asians and Asian Americans do a lot of gaming, right? Uh, we see that transnationally too. Korea, obviously, is uh, they take it way more seriously than the States does in a lot of ways. And um, and you know, I, I also want to to highlight uh, a lot of the, the work in Asian American gaming that we see from people like uh, Tara Fickle, Christopher B. Patterson, Edmund Chang, uh, Juan Hui. A lot of really, really fantastic work in Asian American gaming coming out. Uh, I think because of the fact that that Asian Americans play a lot of games, or we play a lot of games, and and uh, there's a lot of critique that needs to be made, right? So, what does Asian American studies bring to the table when we think about gaming? So, from a representational standpoint, it's obvious, right? So, so you know, here we have this, uh, you know, the obvious techno-orientalism, and you know, for me though, when I when I was writing this, uh, the, the various versions of this chapter slash essay, I, I felt like it would just be too easy to just say, oh, yeah, this game is racist, right? Uh, which it is. But, but I felt that um, what was really interesting, though, was, and this is where I had really put my performance studies hat on, and I was thinking about my own kind of disjuncture between who I was and who uh, in my world versus who I was squeezing myself into, this white male... Uh, super crypt figure Adam Jensen in in DXHR, um, and thinking about how that alone produces a rather historiographic effect. And what's also interesting is how this game, the first half of this game, takes place in Detroit, and that was and that was deliberate uh, because the the creators of the game chose Detroit because they were thinking oh, if we were to have a transhumanist cyborg future, we should set it where the auto industry was, 
because was, you know we we associate that with large mechanization and heavy industry and so forth. And then it goes to China, and then we see all the the anti Asian stereotypes there. Um, so there was this kind of this weird book ending between the Vincent Chen case and the Essex Human Revolution. There was kind of this this, this weird uh, continuity of narrative of relationships between Asianness, Chineseness, Detroit techno-orientalism like 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 it all sort of fit together somehow but in terms of asian americans and gaming i think that there is something to be said about that that dissonance between who one is and who you have to play as and 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 what happens when you encounter the non-player characters you're supposed to kill or otherwise mess with um, something interesting happens there. Some kind of uh, that that I think is really fascinating, um, and that's what I was really interested in. Is these kind of like these masochistic encounters with with those who are both self and other in the game, right? And uh, so that's why this game. This is this that chapter is not just uh, a reading of that game, but also um, at one point I called it an autoethnography, but it was a, certainly a self, a, an engagement of myself and my own relationship to this game and, and, and how to unpack that, which is a very performance studies kind of thing to do. Um, and I talk, I get into, uh, I get into like, you know, uh, phenomenology. I, I, I draw actually a lot from trans phenomenology, a lot, or sort of early, early work in trans studies to think about how flesh precedes the body and how we have to think about the flesh we 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 um that we're not necessarily inhabiting but it becomes part of our our motility part of our spatial awareness and that in a lot of ways is inherent to any first person video game because when you take on that avatarial form and then what does that do with with race right what is that what happens when that does and does not conform to what you're seeing on screen uh and that disjuncture i think can produce perverse pleasures that can sometimes teach us things right so that's kind of my point okay okay great okay so one last question for you um i kind of hate that academics always ask this question um it's the version of what have you done for me lately? But um, what are you thinking about these days? Is, 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 is um, published? It's out in the world. Um, so what are you working on? Yeah. So, I mean, in a lot of ways, when I came away from this book, there, I, what's interesting is near the end of it, I realized that what I was most interested in as I was concluding was actually the question of ideology. Um, I think in many respects, when I was writing this book, I was thinking about Asian American cultural politics in a kind of broad way when I really realized that there are certain things that are specific to Asian American liberalism. And then there are other things that are specific to like an Asian American Marxism. There are things that are sort of uh, uh, specific to like Asian American conservatism straight up, right? So... I guess one thing that I'm thinking about now is thinking about Asian American cultural production with regards to those that ideological heterogeneity and really thinking about that very, very specifically, right? So, uh, you know, so I have a piece coming out in, 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 in Ficklin Patterson's upcoming collection uh, where I do another sort of reading of another like kind of racist but also great video game um, that uh, that 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 orientalizes in a way that coheres a particular Marxist thought, for example, I think is kind of fascinating. Um, and then I'm also thinking about how Christina Wong uh, produce you know produces new ideologies of anarchism, for example, right? So I guess I'm thinking a bit. So I'm, I guess I'm thinking more in terms of you know, really getting into the political theory of stuff a little bit more and, 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 and how Asian Americans have actually been doing this work to produce um, very specific ideological threads that we're seeing manifest in contemporary politics. And we're, you know, and, and we, we see that in some of these presidential candidates today, right? Um, and how does that manifest when it comes to like 
um, not just politics from like a cultural politics standpoint, but from like a from a kind of a straight up on the ground politics kind of way. Like, well, like how is the culture production produced that, right? So, um, you know, that that's very broadly what I'm, what I'm thinking about. Um, and obviously it'll get a lot more specific over time because I'm, I'm betting that's not, that doesn't sound particularly exciting yet, but I think, <laughs> uh, yeah. It absolutely sounds exciting. And I think, you know, I can see the connections from the kind of refinement or the ideas from this book into as you're moving into the, the newer stuff. So I can't wait to read. I can't wait to read that article um, or that chapter out of that edited collection. Um, Takeo, thank you so much for joining me today and for talking about your brilliant book. Um, it was a really great conversation. I enjoyed every minute of it. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to, to be um, you know, interviewed by you, who is a scholar of such renown. And thank you to everyone who's listening to this. I appreciate you taking time out of your day to, to hear us talk. Thank you, Takeo. Bye, everyone.